They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 20 The End of the Beginning When I finished the last episode, I had a very clear idea of what I was going to be working on in the next two weeks. The investigation into the other houses in Windshill that Frank Cunn had occupied in the years that preceded his marriage to Waltraud Kruger in early 1956. But as we've learned, the challenge and the beauty of a live investigation is that sometimes things happen that make you change abruptly the direction you're going in. And a few days after finishing the last podcast, something did happen that made me stop in my tracks and change the direction of the investigation. You'll remember, about a month ago, we received a letter anonymously. I say we, what I really mean is one of the people who's been working with me on this case. And you'll know there are a few people who helped me enormously with the investigation. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll probably know who they are. Now, that letter was hand-delivered. It mentioned a particular family had been involved, but really that was it. There was something about the victim may have come from Sutton Coalfield, but that pretty much was it. Now, obviously, that was important, but there wasn't a lot to go on. But we did some preliminary investigation, and the factual information that was in that letter passed the accuracy test and so that was something that definitely warranted further investigation but then other things needed to be investigated so it kind of stayed on the pile as a very important live strand of investigation that needed further thorough examination and that started to happen in the background but last week we received a second letter and again when I say we I mean the same person who received the first letter. And in that letter, there was much, much more detail that described not only what had happened, but how this person had come to hear about what had happened. The other thing I need to mention is that I've sent copies of both letters to the police. The first letter went to them as soon as I received it. The second letter went to them as soon as I received that. Let me read you that second letter that we received. You need to look at the family of Queen Street as one of them was with their mates from Birmingham. They were not very nice at all. They came to Burton for the statutes fair of the year 1968, the 6th of October, when Fred died. Fred came from Sutton Coalfield on Neaton or Coventry he was about 18 and was gay, or presented gay. 
he had a head that was bent to one side. The police have been incompetent in handling the whole thing. Why am I not surprised? The man from Birmingham had a gun, a Smith & Wesson. I know, I saw it, and they were talking about it. was not involved at all, but his brother was. I saw and heard them talk about it, outside the Uxbridge Arms. I didn't see what they did, but I heard them talking about it afterwards. They did go through Bass's Meadow, and they did get round, don't know how, but they did. They were going to take him to the rifle butts, but changed their minds. I know, as I overheard them talking about it, and I was there. So all the rest is hooey. So on the face of it, that was very important. Far more detail about the victim, the date, how he made his way to the deposition site, and who was involved. In fact, apart from not naming the victim, pretty much everything else. And there were aspects of this letter that made it appear authentic. And the most important one being, it wasn't merely a repetition of what was in the public domain. Yes, they did mention the neck to one side, but things like the route to the deposition site, that was a new idea. The date differed from the police's version of the date of death. And that's the kind of thing that gives it the ring of authenticity. But certain things didn't make sense. The date that was given of 1968. According to the police, the ring wasn't sold until 1969, which made 1968 impossible. A date of deposition of 1968 also means that the forensic calculation of the date of death based on decomposition was also wrong, and wrong by at least a year. And the dental work in that skull, does that really appear to be what you'd expect in an 18 year old? So there were things that made it appear authentic and there were things that made it appear fake, but we didn't know which it was. So we sent copies of the letters to the police and started to check the information ourselves. The other thing that's important about these letters is not so much the content, but how they were written. It's very, very unusual handwriting style. The way the letters are formed, it's unique really. The mix of lowercase and uppercase, how that mix occurs in certain words, the design of the letters, the way they slant to one side, it's all as identifiable as a signature. In fact, much more so really, because there's so much more of it. But on the face of it, this was a huge break in the case. So putting our doubts to one side, we set to work looking through the newspaper archives, trying to find anyone who had gone missing from Coventry, Nuneaton or Sutton Coalfield in 1968 or 1969. And let me tell you, that can be a long and very laborious task because you can find people who went missing and then the big job becomes identifying what happened to them. So having started that process, we were well into it. But about two days after receiving the letter, I got an urgent message from Carl Davis, no relation, but one of the members of the Facebook group telling me he had some very important information to tell me. Now, 
you'll remember when we first received the original letter, I posted that on the Facebook page. I hadn't done that yet with the second letter because really it was so explosive, I needed to make sure I checked it out further in order to make sure I knew it was valid. So we were busy going through that process when I got the message from Carl. And that message simply said, I know who wrote those letters. And that stopped me in my tracks. Essentially, Carl had had his suspicions about someone and had checked their Facebook page. He'd been looking through their Facebook page and came across months ago, a list that that person had handwritten and uploaded onto their Facebook page. And that writing was identical to the writing on the letters that we'd received. And it wasn't a maybe, it's not similar to, it's identical, there's no doubt. Now, that actually doesn't mean in itself that the information is not valid. But the letters make certain claims about overhearing real people in the Uxbridge Arms in or around 1968. And for that to have actually happened, that person, assuming they were 15 at the time, well, they'd need to be at least 68 today. But the person who wrote those letters, they're not 68. They might be 48, but they couldn't have overheard this information. I contacted that person to see if there was any grain of truth in it, some passed down story from a previous generation, anything really that gave it some credibility. But they simply denied sending it. The thing is, I know they sent it. So therefore, I'm satisfied it's a hoax. You might be wondering why go to these lengths to tell you in such detail about a hoax? Well, this podcast is really the story of an investigation and this hoax was an important part of that story. And the other reason is whilst I know this is a hoax, part of me looks at that information and thinks, you know, that is how it could have happened. So in a way, it's opened my eyes to some other possibilities. And I suppose there's one other thing. We know the identity of the hoaxer. I can't imagine for a moment what his motivation was. It's probably deeply psychological and one I'm not qualified to understand. And I won't tell you who it was. They may not have helped me at all. They may actually have hindered me, but I do have a duty of care to them. I feel a bit sorry for them. So let's leave it there. And when we do solve it, we'll look back on it as an interesting diversion. Frustrating at the time, but it could have been far, far worse. If they typed these letters, we'd still be working on it now. So let's get back to some real investigation. Before we were rudely interrupted, I was starting to piece together a timeline for where Frank had been living prior to 126 Newton Road. The reason for that was 
if we could identify any other connections to Frank, that might be really useful. There were in fact three addresses associated with Frank Kuhn in the 1950s. The first one was in Langley Mill. Now Langley Mill is about 20 miles north of Windshill. It's in Nottinghamshire, kind of mining area. And I suspect he was living there and working as a miner in the coal fields around Nottinghamshire. And that was back in November 1953. And this was an address that was given when it was announced in the paper that he was applying for naturalisation, which was required at the time. The next address we've got for Frank is in Windshill, 44 Melbourne Avenue. And that's the address that was given when his naturalisation was announced as granted in the London Gazette. That was on the 17th of August 1954. But it didn't stay there very long because the final address we have for Frank Cunn, again in Windshill, is 10 Wheatley Lane and that's in 1956. That was the address that was given when Frank got married to Valtroud. And after they got married, they both moved in to 126 Newton Road in 1956. And Zoe was born in January 1957. So why is this important? Well, whoever Frank knew feels important. If he was living with any other Eastern European people, and remember Zoe had mentioned although Frank had never mentioned where he'd lived before, Valtroud had, and said it was with some other men. So we needed to try and understand who was living at these addresses at the same time that Frank was. Firstly, the Langley Mill address. I'm afraid that's something of a closed book to us. But fortunately, it's probably not that important as it's a long way away from Winds Hill and a long time before 1969 is probably of very negligible significance. Whoever he was with in Langley Mill probably doesn't feature in a mystery years later in a different county. 44 Melbourne Avenue though feels different. He seemed to have been living with the G family in 1954, probably Agnes G and her husband Frank William G and their son Stuart G who probably was about two years of age when Frank was there. I'll come back to that. In 1956 he was living at 10 Wheatley Lane with the Taylor family. Thomas Taylor I think was the head of the household and then he got married and moved to 126 Newton Road. That all seems pretty clear but digging a bit deeper into this, something struck me. And let me explain. Might be something, might be nothing, but it's worth looking at a little closer. I ran all of these addresses through the National Newspaper Archive just to see if any of them came up with anything. One of them did. 44 Melbourne Avenue. Firstly, because someone who was living there was at risk of eviction in the 1960s. I'm not interested in that. But secondly, it was an address given for a crime that was committed in 1969, right at the time that Fred died. And it involved Stuart G, the baby, when Frank was there, 
who is now 17. He was found guilty of gross indecency with a young man and the indecent assault of young boys of 13 and 14. Now, bear in mind, this was after the legalisation of homosexuality in 1967. Now, I have no idea what the significance of that is, or even if there is any significance. But just for a moment, I found myself wondering, was Stuart G. Fred? I needed to find out if he was still alive. Now, I'm sure there are many Stuart G's around the UK, so... Let's be careful before we point the finger at any particular one. But I think he may be alive and well, and I've tried to make contact with him. But obviously it is tricky, sensitive territory. But as always, I'll keep my fingers crossed. And if anything develops that I think is significant to the case, I shall let you know. Thanks for downloading the podcast. We've got to episode 20. Who would have thought that? I certainly didn't think that when I started it back in March. So thanks for being with me on that journey. And it's been quite a journey. I've met some incredible people on the way and we've discovered some fascinating stories. And I do think we've moved this investigation further than it's ever been moved before. And I think it might be worth recapping on what I consider to be the live strands of investigation. I think the Matthew James Jackson aspects have still got a lot further to go. Do you remember that short telephone conversation I had with his sister? Well, I sent her a letter afterwards explaining the detail that I didn't have a chance to go into and hoping that she was gonna come back to me. Well, she hasn't responded. Now, that doesn't mean anything really, except it does heighten my desire to get to the bottom of the Matthew James Jackson story. And in the background, there's quite a lot of work going on on that front. Mark Harrison has been busy tracking down some of the other relatives on the south coast of Matthew James Jackson. More on that in the next podcast. Secondly, 126127 Newton Road, those houses still intrigue me. I've heard whispers, rumours that they fell into a state of disrepute, disrepair at the end of the 1960s. Some people may have been there that shouldn't have been there. Now, they're just rumours really, but I want to try to get to the bottom of that. Not sure how yet, but there'll be a way. And thirdly, Frank's connections. Who lived on the level? Who was this young man? That's right at the top of the agenda. If I can find some of the relatives of the people who lived there, that's going to make a big difference to this case. And that's what we're going to turn to next. There's just one final thing to mention. I'm going to be tied up a lot over the next few weeks on work stuff, stuff I can't get out of. So episode 21 will be four weeks on or around October the 17th, just to give myself enough time to do everything I need to make sure that podcast is a worthwhile listen. But a quick shout out, if I could, to the accounts office at Horizons Incorporated in Cleveland, Ohio. I know they listen to the podcast. Now, you need to know something important. I'm a big Cincinnati Bengals fan. It's only fair I point that out. But it is great to have you along for the ride. So, 
let's get back to the story. I wanted to bring you up to date with our search for the man that Frank and Zoe had given a lift to on that Saturday afternoon in 1968 or 1969 back to the level on Bearwood Hill Road. You'll remember that I had a walk along Bearwood Hill Road in the last episode to look for likely addresses. And because we had the electoral roll for the end of the 1960s, we could identify who was living in those key houses around where he might have lived. So the next job was to try and find out if anybody who was living there at the time was still around. And that has been a major part of the work being done over the last two weeks. And a huge thank you to Mark Harrison for absolutely sterling work on this. It took hours. So let me take you through each house in turn and who was living there and what we could find out. Firstly, number 55. That was lived in by a man called David Tallis, who I think now lives in Swadlincote. Then it was lived in by someone called Lewis Washington, who I think lives in Winds Hill still. Number 56 was lived in by someone called Kathleen Bailey. I think she died in 1999. We can't find any descendants. Number 57. That was lived in by the Cooper family. The only descendant we can find is a man called Andrew G. Cooper. Now, we don't have an address for him, though. 58, that was lived in by the Sims family. There was two parents and a son, all now deceased. 60, that was lived in by someone called Michael Simnet. I think he died in 2018 and I can't find any other descendants. 61, that was lived in by the Youngman family. Two parents and a son, all deceased. 62, the Baker family. Two parents, two daughters. Parents are deceased now. Both daughters were married in 1966, so probably they won't remember anything that was going on round there in 1969. In number 63, a lady called Evelyn Lloyd. I think she may still be alive living in Swaddlingcote. And then, in the same address, 63, somebody called Joseph M. Smith. I think he may still be alive and living in Derby. 64, that was lived in by the Bowater family. But it wasn't really a family. It seemed to be a brother and sister living together. Frederick who died in 1999, Margaret, who died in 1998. No obvious descendants. And 65, finally, was the Tilly family. But again, I think one person lived in there alone, a lady called Margaret, and I think she died in 1996. So of those 10 houses and flats in which about 20 people lived, there are probably five potentials. David Tallis, Lewis Washington, Andrew Cooper, Evelyn Lloyd, and Joseph Smith. So what can I do from there? Well, I had the addresses for David Tallis, Lewis Washington, Evelyn Lloyd, and Joseph Smith. So I've sent them all a letter. It will be a peculiar letter that they receive about somewhere they were living in 1969, but I'll keep my fingers crossed something comes back to us on that. The other person, Andrew Cooper, we don't have an address for, but I did find him, I think, 
on Facebook. So I've sent him a messenger message on Facebook. And again, I'll keep my fingers crossed. One of the things I like to do when I ever have the chance is to talk to people who were around the area at the time. And last week, I had a good opportunity to do that. I had an interesting conversation with a man called Dennis Snell. Now, this was arranged by Roger Snell, who follows the podcast, and Dennis is his father. And I'm always anxious to understand Windshill in the 1960s, and Dennis Snell was in a really good position to help me. Dennis, as a schoolboy, helped with the beef cattle that grazed on Bass's Meadow. He worked for a man called Joe Bailey. He was the farmer who owned Hill Farm in Bretby Lane, Newton Solney. And Newton Solney is the next village along Newton Road from Winds Hill. It's all very close. Their route involved Mr. Bailey dropping the young Dennis at the bridge next to Time Consortium. Mr. Bailey then drove onto Bass's Meadow via Meadow Lane and then opened the gates across the bridge to let the young Dennis through. So Mr. Bailey had a key. So there's another key to this bridge. More people had keys to that bridge than I first thought. Young Dennis would then go through and help Mr. Bailey with the beef cattle on the other side. And remember, that's exactly where Fred was found. Often Dennis would pick up feed from Greensmith's mill and Dennis and Mr. Bailey did this regularly for years. Should point out though, this was in the early to mid 1960s, so it's not quite 1969, it's a few years before Fred was killed and found. But the context is interesting to me. We talked about that piece of land immediately after the bridge, where the kilns were, where the flint mill was, and where Fred would be found a few years later. My mother used to work in the house for the farmer that used to rent that field. Yeah. Um, I used to be taken to the farm, literally from when I was in the pram until I finished school and started working. And this is the Baileys, is it? Bailey, Joe Bailey. Yeah, okay. That was the farm. He used to rent that particular field from Bassett's, the brewery. Yeah. I used to go there, school holidays, everything like that, Saturdays and Sundays. And the cattle used to belong to Mr. Bailey on that field. We used to go and feed them in the winter, every Saturday and Sunday morning. They were all beef cattle, mm -hmm. and if there was any ready to go to the market, mm -hmm. if the cattle were at the Dalebrook end of the field, which is virtually just behind the old Greensmith's mill, yeah. He used to drop us off at the bridge. Mm -hmm. He would drive, Mr. Bailey himself would drive round, down off the Thames Bridge on Meadow Lane, yeah. onto Bass's Meadow. And if the cattle were, say, at Dalebrook End, he'd drop us off there to save us walking all the way back to bring the cattle up to the bridge end. Yeah. And did Mr. Bailey have a key then? He had a key then, yes. It was only locked at the at the road end. Okay. Did you ever see members of the public on that side? Was it a place where the general public ever went to, or were they, or was it really strictly out of bounds? 
it, well, it, well, it was, you never saw anybody there at all. I mean, Roger did mention to him, he did the Everton Fisherman there, and nobody ever went fishing. I think they possibly do now, definitely not. I never ever saw a fisherman down there because it wasn't the, the that stretch of river wasn't fished by any of the local angling clubs. Mm-hmm. And to get to fish on there, they would have to get permission from the Bailey family. And as I say, I, I never saw any fishermen there. Mm-hmm. And you never saw people walking along there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little bit too far out of the way yeah. for the normal general public to actually walk down there. One of the things that always intrigued me about the body is that he was tied and he was tied with kind of polypropylene twine really and it was very loosely wound i think when i was speaking to roger he was saying well that sounds like baling twine bale twine yeah. bale twine i mean presumably for hay bales and stuff that's right but i think it it had passed beyond the transition period from sisal twine to the polypropylene there wouldn't be a lot of bale twine around at that time most of it was sisal and is that a natural that's a natural fiber isn't it it is yes this was clearly polypropylene yes it was you know it would just be starting to come in but it wasn't used a lot okay and but bear in mind i'm talking 69 now when he would have been killed not 63. yes yes oh yeah 69. i mean my job when i started work was an agricultural engineer Mm-hmm. And of course, we had to convert the baler knotters to take the polypropylene twine mm-hmm. that had been set up for the sisal. Yeah. We did literally thousands of conversions. That's why I was thinking it was just about on the um, time when it was, you know, they were changing over from the sisal. When did you start doing that then? What? How old? Yeah, I left school at, I say, in 63. Uh-huh. Um, served my apprenticeship. So it would be another four or five years, which would take us to that time. Take us to 69, 70, wouldn't it? 70, 71-ish, yes. But this must have been earlier than that, because he was found 71. He'd been in the ground between nine and 18 months. So he's definitely killed between July 69 and July 70. 70, yes. I say it was just round about, you know, the, the changeover to the uh, poly twine. Hmm, that's interesting. That could be twine they found there, i.e. it was, there was just remnants of bits it's of old twine. Remnants. Or is it something they would have had to bring with them, which is a different thing? Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought they would have found it there, but it is possible. Yeah. I mean, Bailey's used to take bales of hay down there, cut the twine, if the, you know, the person taking the, the hay store or whatever didn't pick it up, then it could have found its way around that area. Mm. But. Uh, I honestly don't know what twine the Baileys were using at that particular time. 
certainly up until when I um, in 63 when I stopped going to the farm regularly they were using the old sisal twine on the bales a couple of people have mentioned to me is it you know the old rifle range at the end there the huge big structure yeah the massive structure yeah that surprisingly few people seem to know about but you know it's been there a long time since the first world war uh, pe people used to go down there i mean i've heard things about it. it was a place where you know if you wanted a quiet time with the girlfriend that's a great place to go kind of thing you know what i mean did you ever hear of that kind of stuff or see anyone yeah, coming from that end or anything like that Yes, we did hear about, you know, courting couples going down there. But my thoughts were, as soon as I heard the body had been found in there, first, how long has it been there? Mm. Had I been in there whilst the body was there, but that was ruled out? No, that wasn't the case, no. No, no. And how did it get there? I mean, my thoughts, I don't think it was carried across the bridge. Mm-hmm. I think the weir was too dangerous to carry a body across. Yeah. I would say it was taken down the the track towards the rifle range because mm -hmm. it wasn't far from the track to carry a body across to the um, Flint Mill site. No. And I would say that is the way it actually went. Whoever buried him there knew of its existence before. That's right, they've, they've got to have known. There's not many people who knew it. No. So that was my conversation with Dennis. Very interesting. I like to get this historical context and it does definitely add some interesting things to the mix. One feature that keeps coming up that dominates Bassis Meadow, we haven't really talked about, and that's this rifle range or rifle butts as sometimes it's called. Remember, Bass's Meadow is like a big island in the Trent. The Trent splits off either side of it. It's about a mile long by half a mile wide, and Fred was found on the eastern side of that large island in the Kiln area. Right at the northern end of Bass's Meadow is a huge brick wall. It's monumental in scale. You can see it for miles. When I first moved to Newton Solney, I asked lots of people, what on earth is that? And nobody knew. In fact, it's a rifle range, a huge wall that was built in 1914 at the start of the First World War. And it's a spectacular structure that's still there to this day. It's just a big brick structure with a cast iron facing that rises to a height, it must be about 100 feet and the target wall itself is about 60 meters across and then there's much more wall on either side of that with gigantic buttresses to support it it was abandoned years ago long before fred died in fact in the hoax letter it mentions going to the rifle butts and people did go there it might just look like one enormous wall but there's kind of an interior to it. There are rooms inside that you can access from the back. It would be a great place for a horror movie. So what's its potential significance to this story? Well, I think it may have been a place that people went to for assignations, let's say. It was a very private place. 
that kind of everyone knew but people didn't go to very regularly but courting couples did and who knows what else went on there one route to that rifle range and i should say it isn't the most direct route is kind of past where fred was found it's a long shot if you pardon the pun but i remember going back to my original conversation with david nathan back in episode two he also mentioned this rifle wall as a place where young people and courting couples may have found some privacy so david nathan had mentioned it dennis had mentioned it it was even mentioned in the hoax letter so was it connected to the story of fred did fred meet his death on the way to or on the way back from the rifle range so where are we after 20 episodes well i'm going to use a churchillian analogy we're definitely not at the end and we're not even at the beginning of the end but after 20 episodes it kind of feels like we're at the end of the beginning but until next time have a good one The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.